Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. Um, This is going to be a great show on the nuts and bolts of the application process for rising high school seniors and their parents. For the second segment, we'll be talking about different ways to apply early to schools, such as early decision, early action, and priority deadlines, and why you might want to. And in the third, we'll be giving you some tips on creating your application activity list. Um, But first, my guest Chrissy, who if you're watching this on the videos, you'll see here, Um, Chrissy Foran, College Coach Finance Educator, is here to tell us about securing financing for the upcoming year in college. So I think this is probably like on a lot of people's minds right now, Chrissy. I'm guessing you're getting a lot of of phone calls right now uh, around this. Yeah, tons of that's what most of our calls are right now. It's just kind of a oh my gosh, what what do we do now? Like it's summer, what what's supposed to happen? What's next? And mm-hmm. you know, really simple questions as terms of like, you know, do we teach them how to do laundry? <laughs> but then <laughs> other things of oh my gosh, how do we pay for this? So yeah, it's been it's fun. I love having these phone yeah. calls. So. The, the one thing I can say is do teach them how to do laundry. That seems like a good thing to do maybe when they're sophomores or ninth graders, you know? Like, you know so. they, Teach them how to boil water and make soup yeah. in their dorm rooms and <laughs> exactly. keep their room clean. And, you know, it's amazing the things you don't think yeah. about. Scramble some eggs, you know, that's a good basic <laughs> meal. So Exactly. <laughs> All right. So what are some of the ways families can get help with financing for the upcoming year? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So, you know, we spend most of the fall talking about filling out FAFSAs and applying to schools. And, and then the spring is, you know, here's our award letters and this is what the college is helping us with. And now suddenly families are trying to figure out, you know, how do we pay for the rest of this? So I think one of the things that families can really do is to uh, take a look at their current budget, um, see if there's any room that they can make a kind of a monthly payment to the school. So uh, most schools offer payment plans now. So the more you can pay out of pocket, the less you'll need to borrow and pay interest on later. Um, now that your child's out of the house, are there any expenses? You know, you may no longer have like tutoring or, or sports or dance classes. So kind of look back in your budget and see if there's any way to redirect any funds to um, have a monthly payment plan at the school and, and check into that um, at the school that your, your child is going to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned most schools do offer payment plans. So what do those look like? Um, Yeah, most schools nowadays do offer some kind of a way to pay monthly rather than paying in one lump sum at the beginning of each semester or the beginning of each quarter. So some schools could offer uh, a 12-month payment plan. Others might offer nine or six months. It can really depend on the school and, and what their plan is. So usually the nice thing is that they don't charge interest on the payments that you make, um, but schools will usually charge a fee for using the plan or setting up an account. So the fee could be a couple of hundred dollars per semester. It could be a percentage of, of tuition. It's, it's really up to the school to determine what their plans are. So it is important to talk with your Um, child's college, or a lot of times they'll have information on the website. So you can just search for payment plans um, on their site to kind of see what the options are. 
I would think that they would send links to that information too. When every time a student is admitted, typically there's some sort of a portal. And I would think, yeah. hope that they would link all that information in there. You hope so. I mean, sometimes, you know, college, even college websites and portals can be really confusing. I mean, we, we spend time on the phone with parents kind of walking them through what things to look at in a portal once the student gets a login and it can still be confusing. So I think if, if all else fails, you know, talk with the financial aid office or, you know, get online and just search their website for, for payment plan to see mm-hmm. what you can find. Yeah. Yeah, it is true. The usability of websites can vary dramatically. I've been doing some research and running into some dead links, you know, like I click on a link and I keep getting sent around and around and around. It's a little frustrating. So it'd be nice if it was all uniform, but sadly it's not. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So if the payment plans don't cover everything, what other options um, do families have? Yeah, so I really encourage families to to continue to look for free money uh, in terms of, you know, private scholarships. And, you know, students can do that all four years of college. I mean, there are millions of scholarships that students can search for. And, you know, again, the more money you can find, the less you have to borrow and pay interest on. And I mean, it's not it can be a very overwhelming task to look for private scholarships. But I think it's, it's worth doing, you know, a search just to kind of see what's out there, what's local. Um, to your state or your city, you know, just checking with more local type organizations. So looking for free money, I think can really help. Um, Families can also look into borrowing to help pay for educational costs. So the government offers loans to both students and parents. Um, There's private loans available through various lenders uh, in the states. And then some states even offer private loans through their own state. So states like Texas, New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts, um, they all have private education loans that, that sometimes offer good rates as well and good repayment options. So it's important to do some research if you do want to or need to borrow um, just to see what loan is best for your family or for your student. Mm-hmm. And what can the loans be used to pay for? Can they really pay for everything? Are there limitations on it? Yeah, so whether it's a, a federal or a private loan, um, you should be able to pay for any educational costs, um, you know, that, that's part of the cost of attendance of the college that they're going to. So that would be things like tuition and fees, uh, room and board, um, b- books, um, any personal expenses the student might have throughout the year. So if you need extra money for laundry detergent or, you know, any food or any things that the student might need to help get them through the year. So you should be able to borrow up to that student's cost of attendance, which the schools all have um, a cost of attendance. So it's a good idea to know what that is for your college. So, but, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that when you do borrow a loan, you do want to make sure that you apply for the amount that you need for the entire academic year. So you don't want to borrow, you know, just enough to get through the fall term, just enough to get through the, and then later have to borrow for the, the winter or the, the spring term. Um, federal student loans, um, or other than federal student loans, loans are based on credit and your credit will expire after 180 days or six months. So you do wanna make sure you borrow enough to get through that entire academic year. So you're not having to reapply, have them check your credit again and go through all of that, you know, just all of that that process. So. Um, if you if and if you do borrow enough to cover any indirect costs like personal expenses and books and, and travel and things like that, the school would send you a check once they get your loan funds in. So any loan that you borrow, whether it's a student loan or a parent loan, a private or a federal, the funds usually arrive to the school. They don't go to the parent or the student. 
The school applies any of those funds to tuition and fees and room and board first, which are the direct costs. And then if there's anything left over after that, they usually refund a check to the, the student or the parent, depending on who borrowed the loan for any additional expenses that, that you might need. So really make sure to check with your college's financial aid office to see what is their specific process for borrowing and for refunds as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Um, and are loans typically in the student's name or in the parent's name? I mean, I'm guessing it's a mix depending on what you do. Yeah, I mean, that can really depend. Students can borrow a small federal student loan in their name each year. So it's it's a fairly easy loan to get. Um, the maximum you can borrow as a first-time freshman is 5500 So it's not, a, it's not a huge amount. But if parents want students to, to start borrowing or, or start to earn credit, you know, things like that, then they can certainly um, have the student borrow a small federal loan. Um, there's no credit check for that loan. The FAFSA is required prior to borrowing, um, but there's no cosigner needed on that loan. Um, there's private loans um, as well that can be in a student's name, but typically a parent would have to co-sign because it is a credit-based loan. It's a loan that you would for a lender. Uh, parents can borrow a federal parent loan. It's called a PLUS. Um, that's just a parent loan for undergraduate students. That's a credit-based loan that parents can apply for, and that would be in their own name that they would borrow up, and they can borrow up to the child's cost of attendance for the year. So that one doesn't necessarily have a smaller limit. Um, so they can borrow up to the cost of the year minus anything else that the student is receiving in terms of grants or, or loans. Mm-hmm. Not that they should. I mean, not that they should. <laughs> exactly. Search other means first. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Try the other things first. So, um, and all right. So if tuition bills aren't due until August or September, when do students need to start applying for loans? I would think right away? That's my guess. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the biggest questions we get on our phone calls is, you know, when do we start doing all of this now that, you know, May 1st is kind of the deadline. So after May 1st happens and they choose a school, what's next? Mm-hmm. Well, your credit is good for 180 days when you're applying for a credit-based loan, like a, a federal parent loan or a, or a um, private loan through a lender. So, you know, we encourage families to start applying for those loans as early as June, if you can. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can take several weeks to get everything approved. You may have to provide additional paperwork, you know, tax information, wage information for those private loans. So you want to make sure you give yourself plenty of time to get all of those things done that, that need to be done. Um, and you also want to make sure that you're applying for, you have to apply for loans each year. So I do get families saying, hey, should I borrow for the four years that I need? Or, you know, what's the process? But your credit really is only good for 180 days or six months. So you do need to apply each year that you're needing to borrow to help pay those expenses. So each time you apply for a loan, you're usually applying in the summer before the academic year starts. And you're really only borrowing the amount that you need to cover that one academic year. So just kind of make sure you start the process, you know, every June if loans are needed each year. And for federal loans, you need to make sure that you do fill out the FAFSA each fall um, because that is a requirement for any of the federal parent or student loans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would really emphasize applying as early as you can. I, I, um, this was actually a family friend. She suddenly got denied a loan that she typically gotten, and so then they were scrambling. You know, because she was doing it last minute and it ended up working out, you know, like various things came into play and she actually ended up with a bigger grant, which I think was great. And, you know, really the ideal because they were like, oh, you actually need more than we thought. Um, But it was they were really panicked for a couple of days and I was trying to figure out how to help them, although I'm not an expert in this side of things, you know, but (laughs) like giving them questions to ask. So 
So do it yeah. early, figure it out early. <laughs> yeah, and schools need time to get their paperwork done and get the money in from the bank or the, the government. So I, I think if you can start in, in June, you're, you're doing perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, great. Um, and so how do families actually go ahead and apply for loans? You know, where do they look? Yeah, a lot of it's going to depend on what type of loan the family is applying for. And again, we spend a lot of time on phone calls with families about the differences between the different private loans, you know, federal loans, student, parent. Um, If they're applying for either the federal student loan or the federal parent loan, so either federal loan, they do usually work directly with the school that the child is attending. Uh, The financial aid office there will let them know the steps they have to take to get the process complete. Um, for or again on the the portal for the students for the college portal there's a lot of information usually on borrowing on those websites in the financial aid section so um, again just a reminder the FAFSA is required each year if you would like to borrow federal student or parent loans so you want to make sure you get that done um, every fall Um, studentaid.gov is just the federal loan website or the federal student financial aid website and that's a great website um, just in terms of, of information on that and the link for the FAFSA. Um, any private loans, the, the private loan is more of a, um, the, the parent will be the one that kind of drives that, that process. So they will contact the lender and apply directly through the lender's website. Usually the lender reaches out once approved, once the paperwork's done, then the lender reaches out to the school to let them know that this parent's been approved for this certain amount of money. So really make sure you're doing research on the lenders and the loans that are available to figure out what's best for you. If, if interest rates are more important, if fees are important, if repayment options are important. Um, so the school's information or the school's website can a lot of times have information on various private loans too. So um, you can always go to the schools that your child's attending, type in private loan, you know, in their search bar um, just to see if they have a list of different private lenders, if that's something that you're interested in. Um, there's websites, you know, studentloanhero, bankrate.com. You can do use some of those to research private loans and the different interest rates. So, um, and then depending on the state your child's going to school in or the state that you're from, definitely check to see if you're, if that state offers any private loans through the state itself, like we had kind of said earlier. So those can have lower interest rates. Sometimes they can have good repayment options. They can have no fees. So, um, regardless of what loan you choose, the money will usually be sent directly to the school to pay for your child's um, direct costs. Um, so you won't be getting any money until those costs are paid for. And then if there's any left over, those would be sent to you from the school itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are some things to look for when researching loans? I mean, I admit that like alarm bells go off, you know, because like, do, you know, you read the articles I know the average is not actually that everybody's <laughs> borrowing like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, but, yeah. um, but let, let's kind of talk about things to think about when you're researching all these loans. Yeah. And we do really recommend to, to do your research before you borrow. I mean, you, you know, for private loans, definitely shop around, do some research. Um, you can apply for multiple lenders, you know, if, if you're looking at private loans, just to see what kind of interest rates you can get, because with private loans, your interest rate is based on your credit. Uh, whereas federal loans, the student loan and the parent loan, those are set by the government each year. So if you're interested in, in private loans, make sure you're shopping around, looking at what the current interest rates are. Um, depending on your credit, you can definitely apply for more than one, but just make sure you're applying you know, for all those loans maybe in the same week or the same time frame, so it's not dinging your credit each time you apply. Um, but one of the things you want to think about is 
um, how much you need, think about borrowing in, in general from that lender for the remainder of your child's undergrad. So, you know, you don't necessarily want to go from one private lender to another private lender, you know, for all four years. And when you, when they graduate, you're going to have four different payments to four different lenders. So one thing to think about is to kind of continue with that same lender as the four years go by. So you'll have one payment um, that you'll make after the four years are done to the same lender. Um, you know, you want to know what your interest rate is. So again, federal loans, the, the government sets those interest rates each year, but private loans, it's based on your credit. So, and if you don't have great credit, uh, you might want to think about applying with a co-signer or an endorser to, to get better credit or better interest rates. Um, and then, you know, pay attention to the fine print. Not many people think about what's going to happen when they're repaying the loans. They think about, I just need to get a loan to get myself through college. I just need to borrow right now. And they don't think about what's going to happen after they've graduated and you know, get a job and that sort of thing. So, you know, as a parent too, think about, are there any caps to the amounts that you can borrow? So, you know, with private loans, sometimes if you get to the point where you're borrowing 70,000 or $60,000 a year, you may not be able to borrow for that last year because you've reached a cap limit that they won't allow you to borrow anymore. So know if there's any aggregate loan limits to the amount that, to make sure that you can cover all four years of your child's undergrad. Um, Find out if there's any origination fees, you know, depending on the lender and, and your credit. Um, what is their repayment term in years? You know, do they offer 10 years, 15 years, 20, 25 years for repayment? So if that's important to you, um, some private lenders have fixed versus variable interest rates. So they'll offer you both depending on what you want to do. Um, typically payments aren't required while, while your child's in school for those four years. But again, that's something you want to make sure of if you don't want to make payments for those four years. Um, you know, is there, are there options to postpone payments? So with the federal student and parent loans, they do give you some options for postponing payments should the student go back to school or should parents fall into financial distress. A lot of private lenders don't offer that. So that's something to definitely look into if you're looking into to private loans, if something happens financially. Um, a question you don't really want to answer or ask is what happens to the loan if your student should die or become totally or permanently disabled? Is that loan canceled? Are you still responsible for it? So again, some private lenders don't do that. Federal loans, they will do that. So just things to think about it. You know, if, if you're if you're borrowing for the entire year, can you cancel any of that if you don't need the loan? So if your child gets some scholarships in that second term and you don't need all of that loan, will the lender let you return it? Um, can you send money back if it's not needed? So there's lots of things to look at. And I think it's really important depending on how much you're borrowing to really decide what is best for your family? Is, is the federal government loans better? Are the private loans going to be better? The repayment options, the interest rates, the fees. Um, so, and you know, it, it's talk with us too. We're happy to talk with, with people one-on-one -on -one, uh, with a college coach finance expert and, and um, go over that information. Well, actually I should say these aren't our corporate clients. So they, <laughs> so oh, what I would say is, post, <laughs> but what you can do is we answer listener questions. So absolutely oh, yeah. post questions about this. Absolutely. You can post it on our Facebook, et cetera. And we're really, really happy to answer it. There's a lot of good information on our blog post, blog.getintocollege.com. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, so absolutely. And schools financial aid offices are usually really great too, just to help give out information on different loans or, you know, with their websites doing some research on that too. So there's a good yeah. place to get good information too. Yeah, I'm going to give a tip there. I think people are always really freaked out when they call mm -hmm. financial really? aid offices. And so yeah. they're like, you know, they can be really rude. If you're persistent but polite, 
you're uh-huh. gonna get a lot farther. That's absolutely yeah. my recommendation. There's a lot, yeah. Just in all the years I've worked in schools, a lot of students were afraid to talk to us. Parents didn't want to. I mean, you're talking about finances. A lot of people don't want to do that, but you know, we always try to be as helpful as we could and give out the best information we had. So, I mean, it's it's a good idea to check in with them if if you have questions. Right, right. But just keep in mind that they might make a lot less than you do, actually. So don't assume <laughs> that they're just because you're paying a lot to the school that they're rolling in it. So. Right. Exactly. All right. So um, that was great, Chrissy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Sally. I'm uh, glad I could be here today and have a wonderful afternoon. Yeah, me too. All right. So we're now going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll be talking with Lisa Albro, college coach veteran, about the early application plans to colleges. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to talk about the early plans for applying to college. So this is something that a lot of people get really confused about. I don't know if you find the same thing on the call. And they also, they call it early application. I'm like, that's not what it is. Or early admission, I hear a lot as well. Yes, exactly. And then they're like, what's priority? So let's like, let's try and get really into the nuts and bolts and define all of them. So why don't you go ahead and kind of get started. Just just run them down. Sure. (laughs) So I I guess the the two I always think of first are early action and early decision. And that gets really confusing because they both have the word early in the title and they they seem interchangeable, but they're they're really not. Uh, The way I like to describe the difference is, you know, early action is a way to apply early, get an early answer, but still have lots of opportunity to choose. You, You can apply to multiple schools early action, consider multiple offers, you're not dialed in or or bound to a school. Early decision, however, as you know, is a binding contract where parent and student and counselor, school counselor, sign a contract agreeing to the terms, which basically will say, if you're accepted, you will attend, hands down, you will say thanks, but no thanks to any schools that have offered you admission already, you will not submit any further applications, and you will withdraw any applications pending. So you're committed. I like to tell students that early decision is like committing at the point of application, Mm -hmm. which essentially it is, right? Um, And so 
those are the two that, that come to mind first. And we're going to talk about some examples of schools that are early action, early decision, um, you know, early decision schools. University of Pennsylvania has early decision, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Tufts University, uh, Boston College, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you name it. A, a lot do, but a lot don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it could be if they don't have early decision, they might have early action. Mm-hmm. Uh, schools that come to mind with early action. I think of University of Michigan. That's a, that's a really popular one with an early action plan. Um, you know, University a lot of, of the, Maryland. Yeah. yeah. University of Maryland or Fordham University. Those are just a few that just come to mind, but many, mm. many, many schools have them. And there are a few out there that actually have early action and early decision. And you can choose which early plan you want to apply by, which is you know, kind of cool, kind of freedom mm-hmm. of choice for a lot of students, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I will say uh, um, that's one way of looking at it. I also feel like maybe this is just kind of confusing, you know, mm-hmm. so it's a little bit of a mixed bag. On the one hand, it's good. On the other hand, I'm like, you know, maybe yeah. too much choice. <laughs> so. right. That is true. That is true. And then I think where it becomes more confusing is when you have different words or different letters in front of the EA for early action, like restricted early action mm-hmm. or REA. Um, that sometimes seems confusing to students. And really what that is, as you know, is places like Harvard and Princeton, I think Stanford, right, has REA, mm-hmm. uh, where you're basically Set, you're signing essentially a, an agreement with the school when you apply early there saying, I won't apply any place else early, but you're not bound to the school. So if they accept you, if Stanford says yes, mm-hmm. you're not committed to going there like you would be if it were early decision, but you're also not accepting any other, you're not, you're not putting yourself out there for any other early offers. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, a lot of the schools that have restrictive early action are generally schools that are kind of in the same the same echelon, mm-hmm. right? The same most kind of, selective, most highest sele- level. Yes, highest yes. levels or, or or most rejective or whatever. Yes, most rejective. Days, I think right? I think when they're denying ninety six percent, we can call them most rejective. Yes, kind of <laughs> like, can, right? Yeah, and so they just want to know schools. The Yale wants to know that you're not also applying early to Harvard. They want to know that you're picking which one from mm-hmm. among these is is your top choice. And so again, you're not committed to the school, but you also can't have any other early applications out there, which mm-hmm. for some students can be limiting. Mm-hmm. It's very limiting. I will say, I think it's important to know the exceptions for public schools. Like you can apply to University of Michigan and Stanford, yes. you know, but uh, can you apply to Stanford and Harvard early? No, you cannot. You absolutely cannot. And that violates not just kind of the definition, but the very spirit of it. Cause I think that's exactly what they're trying to avoid is sort of the student who's you know, going for it with all of these highly selective colleges. I've even heard, and I mean, please double check on their website, but I think I saw on Stanford's website a few years ago, and I don't know if they're still doing this, that they did decide to allow students apply even to kind of less selective private schools that offered scholarships if there was for, so they're trying to be flexible and I, and I applaud it, but it makes things then even more confusing. So you really have to look at the fine print with each school too. Yes, you do. It, uh, it is confusing. And it, just like with everything, what we say here, yes, we know what we know and mm-hmm. the ch- rules change all the time and schools from year to year might change their, their plan, their early action plan. Mm-hmm. Or, and I can give you an example of years and years and years ago, and I'm talking 
probably uh, you know early early two thousands, maybe mid two thousands. Um, University of Michigan, if you recall at the time, used to not have an early action plan. They used to have kind of these cohorts, which mm-hmm. if you applied by a certain date, like I want to say like middle of October, you were considered in that grouping of students, right. but it wasn't, det- it wasn't termed as an early anything. Um, they also had a kind of a second early grouping, but it, again, it wasn't termed. It was just that if you got your application in by this date, you were considered under that grouping of students and you were either, you know, admitted, denied, whatever. And it, it changed without a lot of notice in, in mm-hmm. one year where I had a student who was considering University of Michigan. He was saying, well, I'm applying early action. And I was arguing with him. They don't have early action because I had not yet heard that. Mm-hmm. Yes, in fact, they, they did. And he was saying, but that's what I heard. That's what they told me. I said, no, 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 you're wrong. They have this. And so I'm going through this whole explanation of you know how they don't have early action. And then I realized, oh, wait, yes, they do. They, they right. just adopted it this year. And so you have to pay attention to all the newest data. So for current juniors, right, who are just about to be seniors, who will be applying next year, you know, what stands this year may not stand next year. They might make a change sometime in the months to come. Mm-hmm. And by the time you're ready to apply, so always read the latest of their information on their websites, mm-hmm. the admissions websites. The other thing too, that I have to say that I think is unfortunate is they don't always up dated until August 1st on the common application or the coalition. So like, for example, I'm helping some of my students now by setting up these charts and looking at deadlines and things. And I have a little asterisk at the bottom that says, as of, you know, June 1st, must re-verify after August 1st. Yes. You know, because at that point is really when the schools, I think, feel an obligation to have things posted. I do want to be clear that I think most schools try and have everything done before then, try and be transparent. But I've just run into schools being like, like suddenly there's a switch and I'm like, what happened? You know? <laughs> so. Occasionally that does happen. And we've, we've all heard stories and we've, we've mm. experienced ourselves with students sometimes where even with a, a supplemental essay, there's been a change kind of mm. midstream in even the wording of a topic or topic choices. And we've said, wait, but, but a month ago it was this, what happened? Right. And so, so occasionally, and I, and I don't say that to scare anybody, but just kind of always keep, keep checking. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Just keep checking. Do pre-work now. I think it's worth it to save time, but know that you might need to tweak something or something might be a little different. Verify everything after August 1st, unless it's clear that their website is fully updated and and recent, in which case then I think you can kind of relax a little bit. So, yeah. So what about, I think we're missing something that actually is probably what most schools do, which is priority because they're rolling. So let's define those terms. Sure. So priority really is just a date by which certain schools that have priority will say, get your application in by this date. And sometimes it means to be considered for certain scholarships or certain housing choices. There, there can just be certain little stipulations at different campuses where they want you to apply by the, or they, they have a priority date and a regular date, let's say. And if you apply by the priority date, you're in the running for maybe certain scholarships mm-hmm. or certain certain preferential programs or what have you and there might be some programs like I think I want to say Purdue is a school that has a priority deadline for certain majors like computer science Mm -hmm. nursing right yeah so if you're looking at certain programs at certain schools it's always smart to be aware of whether there's a priority deadline for the program you're applying to which Mm -hmm. can happen yeah, priorities. I mean, and it is confusing because priority can also be just very similar to early action. 
Um, but then at other schools, there really, there are some schools that basically are going to take students up until through August. But right. if you, yeah, if you hit their priority, which honestly might be March 1st, might be yep. November 1st, like we don't know. Um, but then that will qualify you to more scholarships. And I did have, I was talking to a mother, um, you know, and her student had, you know, blown off the early action deadline to Virginia Commonwealth. And I said, you know, because he was like, Mom, it's no pro it's a no problem for me. It's a safety. I'm gonna get in. And I said, you know, the unfortunate thing is he is gonna get in, but he might have gotten a scholarship if he'd hit that deadline. And now it's too late. Like right. they're not gonna bend on that because why would they? Right. Well, and you also you bring up a really good point about getting things early, getting things in early for places that are no problem or safety schools. A lot of people mm -hmm. call these your safety schools, right? Um, it's always been in my practice to advise my students to apply or if they have early action or mm -hmm. if they have rolling admission, something that's non-binding or priority, get your applications in by those earlier deadlines. If it's a, a, a safety school or even kind of a lower more attainable target for you because you're more likely to get a positive response from that school and boy the pressure it takes off of you to have those early yeses mm -hmm. i always see that and and you know you and i both worked on we worked on the high school side and we were in the trenches watching the students on their day you know their daily you know ruminations <laughs> over all of this <laughs> and they were in and out of our offices and stressing out about things and so when i would have a student and I could get them to, to really just get everything in early or their, their, their safety schools and target schools in early for applications, the pressure it took off, I could almost visibly see their shoulders, mm -hmm. you know, go from like, you know, weighted down to oh, again, you know, that they were mm -hmm. able to breathe again. And even if it was their super safe school that they kind of knew they were going to get into no matter what, it took a lot of the stress out of the process to say, Hey, I have a place. Even mm -hmm. if nothing comes out, I have this place. And they were more than likely getting more responses that were positive too. But it, boy, it, it's, it's a game changer mm -hmm. in the, the, the psyche mm -hmm. uh, of a student and the family. It takes a lot of pressure off. So, so please, if, if there's anything I can urge everyone to do, it's, it's apply early action or priority rolling, whatever it is to your safest schools. So mm -hmm. you have it maybe a pocket full or a few positive responses by December, January, February, and mm -hmm. you're not stressing through the whole Yeah, <laughs> I have had the same experience and I can't tell you how often I've had students come in and say, Ms. Ganga, I'm going to college. And I'm like, we always knew you were, but I'm glad that, that, that now exactly you, my response. <laughs> I now that not glad that now you are feeling that you know it too, you know, yes. because yeah, especially if they get a deny or a defer early, they're devastated. Mm -hmm. They think that they're not going to get in. And I always have to talk them through. We planned for this. We were hoping different, but we planned. The, and so we have a plan B, we have a plan C, we're all good, you know, right. but when they get in, they believe it, you yes. know, when they get into one of those. So I think that's great. All right. So we only really have like a minute left, but yes. any particular like myth that you want to bust just really quickly? Well, before the myth, I don't think I really described rolling oh. admission, right? And I apologize. Oh, yeah, for you're, you're off right. On a tangent. You. I was yeah, very yeah. excited about this topic. <laughs> Sorry. So rolling admission really, there is technically there is a deadline, but there's, it's way in the, you know, by like mm -hmm. April, May. Um, mm -hmm. So the idea with rolling admission is the admissions officers will read the applications and decide upon them as soon as they're complete. And so with 
usually the turnaround is fairly quick. I mean, some schools mm-hmm. quicker than others. Like I know, uh, you know, Alabama, I have students applying to University of Alabama and they get an answer in a couple of weeks or, or, mm-hmm. or Mississippi, even those are a couple that are fast. And, and that's a great way to get an early answer. And it's a good idea to get in on the early end of rolling admission before they've already made lots of offers and have fewer seats left too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At some of these schools, I have found that they can be a little, they're a little more generous early. Yes. Um, even if they say they're not, I think that they just are because they start to realize as time goes in how selective they can be and yes. they might start to pull back if they're having kind of a banner year. So mm-hmm. exactly. yeah, absolutely. I know we're just about out of time, but a quick myth that I like to debunk is that a question I always get on calls is, uh, well, what what should my early school be? I should I, I need to pick an early decision school. Well, not everybody has to pick an early decision school. I don't think it's a matter of having it on a menu and saying, okay, what's my early decision choice? It's it's right for certain students, but it's not right for everybody. Mm-hmm. So please don't feel like everyone must have an early decision school. That is not always the case. Mm-hmm. Although we know that yes, it can give you a leg up in a certain way to some degree. That's another discussion for another time about specifically early decision. But please don't everybody think you must have an early mm-hmm. decision. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that is something that we have had done shows on in the past. So, you know, go on to our blog post, blog.getintocollege.com, and you can look for that general sort of topic and, uh, you know, read what we have to say about it. So, all right, Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So everyone will be back in just a minute with um, Nicole Doyle, and she and I will be discussing the activity list on the applications. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Nicole. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. All right. So we are here to talk about the activity list. I think we can kind of use the common application as sort of the baseline activity list. The coalition, I think, is pretty similar. Everything else sort of varies from that. But I always feel like if you start with the common application activity list, you can build everything else from there. Does that sound good to you? It's good, I think, because that builds a foundation. So you have the 10 that you can list on the common application. You list out the time, you list out the activity. But I think the hardest part for many students is is prioritizing which ones and, and how to put them in order. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So let's dig into that. Like, how do you recommend that students start on the activity list? I know some students dive right in on the application. That's not how I have them do it, but curious to hear your thoughts. So typically what I do is I will have, I have students start big. So I always say, write everything down first. So don't, don't think about almost what's, what the common app is asking for. Start with everything. And then think about, think about your, the time, think about the importance, which is probably number one, um, the role that you play, whether, you know, it doesn't have to be a leadership role. It could just be your role in that activity and how much involvement and engagement you have. But I think what's most important is get everything down and think about throughout that time in high school, how have you spent your time outside of the classroom, no matter how small it is or how big it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and let's talk about that because I talk to a lot of students who, when I say extracurriculars, they don't list much. And I'm like, I, is that, is that really everything? And they're like, oh, well, I did do this competition over the summer for coding. And I'm like, why would you not realize that counts? You know, or they're like, well, I, I have a job in the summer and I work 40 hours a week and I'm the shift supervisor. Like this matters, you know? So. And that's one of my favorite things. Like students will say, well, I haven't done an organized activity in, in school, so it doesn't count. And, and all of a sudden, when you dig a little bit deeper and you say, okay, so let's talk about that. How do you like to spend your time? Are there hobbies? Do you mm-hmm. like to cook? Do you, you know, have something that maybe you, you love to exercise? So you joined a gym. Like, what are those pieces that you do that may not seem like an organized activity, but it's a way that you have spent your time and it's something that you really need to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it could even be, I worked with a student who she took care of her uh, younger siblings every day after school, every single day, basically from three o'clock, she picked them up from school and she had them until six o'clock when her mother came home every day. And mind you, she still managed to work on the paper, which I thought was pretty impressive, but Um, given what a heavy responsibility she already had. So like really list everything, I think, to start out with. And it's great to be able to put everything down because I think that that whole idea of students thinking something doesn't count, it does. So if you list everything out from the beginning of like even hobbies, interests, and those organized activities that you may be involved with, that can then lead to different things. And all of a sudden you realize, okay, I can lump some together Mm -hmm. or there's some that I feel like need to stand out more. And then that's how you probably end up prioritizing better by saying, yes, I'm going to put this as a lead activity followed up by others. So Mm -hmm. it's, it helps in in prioritizing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm working with a student now who, um, you know, he wants to be an engineer. He's done kind of traditional engineering activities like robotics, um, et cetera. But he also, he and his parents live on sort of a small farm. And so he's constantly like canning things. He made pep, they had like a bumper crop of peppers. So he made like um, salsas and hot sauces. Um, He decided to make cheese So he's been making cheese and I talked to him about it and he talked about like, it's really sort of the chemistry of it that interests him. And if he had just sort of done some canning one day, I wouldn't have had him emphasize it. But I said, these activities in aggregate are 
fascinating and say a lot about you. So it was important to me, like he listed 26 activities initially, and obviously there wasn't room for all of them. But just like what you're saying, we kind of found a way to group them together, like the canning and the hot sauce and almost like a homesteading category. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And, and similar to that, I, I was talking to a student who traveled every summer, um, and, and it's close to where I live, but to Lake George, New York. So we kind of related on location. And then he started talking about how he began to do research on the lake because it was a place that he felt so close to. By the time he graduated high school, he had decided to share his thoughts and write a short paper. Almost, it, he wanted to publish it as a book, almost a pamphlet to bring to the lake to share some history on the lake. And it was fascinating because it just, it shows that spinoff too. Like, you know, his, like you're the student you shared, he decided to use his skills and, and his family had a farm and the peppers. And so you have an interest and in see how that turns into something else and, and how you can share that is so fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Very fascinating. Very unusual too, for a student with his sort of like his goal of being an engineer, you know, probably a lot more common for someone who wants a major in agriculture. So I think that's the other thing that people don't realize is how much I think colleges, it's not that colleges don't appreciate it when an engineer does robotics because they do, but when you do something that breaks the mold as well, I think that can be really interesting and, and sort of really fun. So um, any like, so I think we've kind of gone over some of the broad theory of it. Like, what are some of the practicalities of the act activity list? Like, how do you then start to choose, for example, if you're like my student and you've got 26 different activities when everything is written down, how do you start to narrow it down? You know, I always have the students, it, the priority order is is nice to see because it shows what's important to them. But I also think it's breaking down you know, sometimes there is a one-off, which is an activity that only was a very short period of time, but it's a priority to them. And so that should be in that top 10, whether, yes, whether it's related to a career interest, whether it's something that they value, their role, and they can truly represent how much time they spent in that role. And again, I go back to what I stated earlier, it doesn't have to be a true leadership position of a president or a mm -hmm. captain, but it's something that was meaningful and they had an impact on that group or organization or team. Mm -hmm. So I think if, when it comes to putting that priority order of 10 and realizing what they want to share, it could be career related. It could be really what's most important to them, but it also could be just as far as who they want to represent themselves as a person and having that balance in the list. So mm -hmm. that's where it comes down to selecting the 10 that they feel represents them the best and that they can show their role. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, an example would be, I worked with a student who had done um, Center for Talented Youth when she was in ninth grade, and that was really important to her. It had kind of set her on a path towards being really interested in the classics. So even though it was ninth grade, I said, we really need to leave this on here. Uh, by contrast, I had a student who, you know, did karate for a couple of years. It didn't mean much to this particular student, and it was only ninth grade of high school. So I said, that doesn't need to go on the list. That's a pretty easy one to eliminate. And I think what they see, it, it helps them to realize what, 
you know, how their time has been valued and what they, you know, yes, like you state karate and it was something that they did, but maybe it wasn't as exciting. But then there was that one activity, whether it was in, you know, they played baseball and then they decided to be an umpire for baseball. And then they decided to coach a little league team. Mm -hmm. Like how did all those translate into one another as far as throughout the four years? And so it's, it's, I like to use the term, like the layering, like how did you add to those different things? And that's what you want to share, not the things that, that don't stand out for you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I also do think it's really interesting what you say about the layering of that one activity. You know, I'll talk to families and they'll say, well, all he does is baseball. And I'm like, well, really? And then we dig in and like, he's an assistant coach. He does this, he does it, you know, and I'm like, all those are using different skills. Yes, they're building on baseball. But if he's an assistant coach, he's working with other students you know, there are these other elements. And so I always think it's really good to highlight that. Now, I do want to put in a plug that it, it does have to be what's most important to the student. But I also really like to see ones where students were somehow collaborating with others. So I will say that I think that deserves a little extra highlight too. Just as far as it, yeah, I think that is, that is a key point, because I think what they want to see is that the students, they work well with others and that they're going to come and contribute to that campus. Um, you know, they don't want all the students, it's not going to be a cookie cutter campus. It's going to be, what can that student bring to that community? And if they can collaborate with others within their school community or their outside community, that role can be represented within the list. So it's nice to see when a student has truly had an impact on their community, no matter way it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you. Okay. All right. Be sure to listen in next week when we'll be addressing being Jewish at a college with a Christian name like Texas Christian or Southern Methodist University. We'll also be going over how to spend your college savings wisely and the findings from the most recent common application report, which if you're a dork like me, you're going to find that really interesting. I always like to know what the overview is, you know. All right. And finally, I want to remind everyone that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. You can download every show for free on iTunes. And by the way, please do, if you like us, please rate us so that people can find us. We really appreciate it. Um, and remember, too, as I mentioned during the show, you can find summaries of our shows on our blog page, blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.